somehow it um, jars me to hear one of my uh, lacy size 22 mayfly patterns described as a white elephant. <laughs> and I conjure up a picture of some delicate four-line cast and an elephant doing a cannonball off the other side. <laughs> Turn with me to Nehemiah 9, will you please? Nehemiah 9. I should ask, are you reading your Bibles? Or, uh, as Dr. Jack Mitchell would say, are you reading your Bibles? I uh, hope you are. I, I had someone who called me this last week and said for the first time in their life they read through an entire book of the Bible. It happened to be the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, they were greatly enriched simply by their reading. So I would encourage you to read your Bibles. That's what we're going to do this morning from uh, the ninth chapter of, of Nehemiah. Read and, and worship as we read. You may remember the story of Fanla Fenelon. Uh, it was told in a documentary film entitled Playing for Life, or, T- or Playing for Time, rather. Uh, Fanla was in an orchestra that was composed of Jewish musicians, all, uh, all women, who were spa- uh, spared the gas chamber as long as they prayed well. They were dressed alike. They were all dressed in gray. Their heads were shaved. They uh, were totally anonymous. They had no real significance other than the fact that t- to stay alive... They had to play play well. Their whole life was reduced to that one prop, proposition. Play beautifully or die. And uh, some of you, I suspect, are feeling that way about your Christian life. You, you feel as though God has given you an instrument to play, and it's a very difficult instrument to play. And you're not doing very well. You're blowing a few sour notes and uh, having a hard time of it. And God is sitting out there in the stands in the audience, listening to you, listening to every sound, every move you make, every thought that goes through your heart. And uh, uh, your, your life is reduced to that same proposition, I have to play beautifully or die. If that's so, may I, may I say to you this morning, if you feel that way, it's not true. It's not true. Jesus loves you. He died for you. The Bible tells you so. And uh, so does Nehemiah 9 which is a portion of the Bible I'd like to look at this morning. Ninth chapter of Nehemiah. Now, according to uh, verse 1, the occasion for this, for the events in this chapter uh, was a gathering at the platform where Ezra, uh, several, several days before, had read to Israel from the Scriptures. This was right after their family camp. And uh, they gathered again at the platform. The scriptures were read to them. We're not told whether Ezra read on this particular occasion, but they were read again. And then they worshipped. There were some Levites who first performed worship. It was a sort of pattern worship to show the people of God how they ought to center on God. And then uh, another set of Levites. Five of the names are common to both both groups. And I don't know exactly how this how these Levites were arranged or who they were. Their names are given to us in verses 4 and 5. But they, they said to Israel, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. One thing that prayer does for you is focus you on God. Prayer is not intended to be uh, an opportunity for you to ask for everything in, in the world. God is not a, a celestial vending machine. You don't pop in a prayer and 
gets anything back for it. That's not the purpose of prayer. Prayer is fundamentally given to us for worship, for purpose of worship. It centers us on God, gets us off of our preoccupation with ourself, our world, our sins, our problems, our defeats, and it centers us on God. And that's what this prayer does. It was a liturgical prayer. Apparently the Levites uh, would read a section, and uh, then the people of God would respond. They would, would pray in response. This is communal prayer. Now let's, let's look at it, beginning with the last part of verse 5. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. The text makes it even more clear. You're, you're the Lord only. You're the only one. That's the emphasis of that phrase. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything. And the multitudes or the hosts of heaven worship you. Worship you. Now, you, you as, as you'll observe, this is taken right out of Genesis 1. Remember, Ezra had read from the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, and Genesis would be the starting point. So he read the creation story, and now they pray in response to this revelation of God as the maker of all of us. He's the creator, he says, of all the, uh, of all the universe, of all space. As far as you go out into space, that's his handiwork. You'd find his fingerprints on everything out there. And as you look around uh, you on the earth, you find this is a part of God's handiwork. And we are. We don't have any existence apart from God. Every move we make, every beat of our heart, every step we take, it, it comes from God. As Paul puts it in Acts 17, uh, quoting one of the Greek poets, In Him, that is in God, we live and move and have our existence. We, we, we're not, none of us are self-made men or women. As the psalmist put it, It is you, God, who has made us, and not we ourselves. We can't make ourselves. God made us. And we owe everything, life itself, our very existence to God. That's always the starting point because people are inclined to, to forget that we're made by God. We think of ourselves as autonomous. It's, we sprang out of something, some primordial ooze, and here we are. And uh, we are what we are by our own self-effort. But everything that we are comes from God. We're nothing without Him. We don't even exist. We've got to keep that in mind. We're inclined to, to forget. We belong to him. I was thinking this past week that it would make a great uh, Steven Spielberg film to have, have some Geppetto-like uh, character, some kindly toy maker. Uh, make a little wooden man and uh, have the capacity to give it life, and the thing begins to walk around his uh, workshop. And, <laughs> and then this thing that he's made turns into a nasty, mean-spirited little troll. And he starts to sass the toy maker and give him a hard time and break up his toy shop and just run, wreak havoc in his house. And, and yet the toy maker would continue to love this little man that he made. I, I, you know, that is what it's all about. God made us for himself. And we turn against him. And we hardly even give him the time of day. And yet everything that we are and everything that we have depends upon him. We have not made ourselves. It is he who has made us and everything around us. And that's where the prayer begins. It's an ode to our maker, a, a word of praise to the creator. Then in verse 7, uh, we move down a bit in history to the story of Abraham. We move from Genesis 1 and 2 to Genesis 12. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldees. 
and named him Abraham. Abrahamah, that is the, the father of a, of a multitude. Uh, God didn't choose Abram because he was particularly promising. He was a moon worshiper. He lived over in Ur of the Chaldees. He was a Babylonian, basically. Ancient Babylonian. Wasn't a Bible-toting fundamentalist. He just had a heart, a yearning for God. God found him and brought him out of that terrible situation and brought him into, into Canaan and promised him that he'd, he'd make a man out of him. I'm going to make something out of you, Abraham, he said. I'm going to make your name great. You're going to be famous. Abraham today is famous in three in three religions and all over the world. Everybody knows the name of Abraham. And we're going to make of you a great nation, the entire nation, the Jewish nation, sprang from Abraham's loins. And I want to give you this land, he said. It was not conditioned upon Abraham's performance. We're told that he, he sought out Abraham because he was faithful. He was a dependent man, but he very often failed. He lied. He, he, he forgot the promises of God when he fled the land. Uh, he often gave up on God, but God never gave up on him. He saw that he had a, a heart, a hungering heart. And so God made him the man that he said he would be. He made something out of, out of Abraham. And then the prayer moves on in, into history to the Exodus. Verse 9, you saw the suffering of our forefathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. And uh, he describes the miraculous deliverance through the Red Sea. Wherein he says, you made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them, so that they passed through it on dry ground. But you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. That's a quote, a direct quote from Exodus 15. They'd been reading the Bible, you see. And now they're praying according to the revelation that, that they received. Uh, there, there's no analogy for what God did in the Exodus. He took two and a half million people out of another nation and made a separate nation out of them. Delivered them. By the plagues, or the strokes is the term that's used in the book of Exodus. And set him free to, to serve him. And he brought him down to Mount Sinai, verse 13. And spoke to them from heaven. He gave them the law. Not to replace the promise, but, but to tell them how a nation under God should, should behave. The law didn't make them right with God. They were already in the covenant. The, the law simply told them what God was like and gave them a pattern for their own righteousness. You, you made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger you gave them bread from, from heaven, the manna that came from heaven. This totally unexpected gift of God at a time when they were, they were uh, uh, dying of, of hunger. And you brought them water from the, from the rock. They were dying of thirst. And water gushed from the flint rock. It was, it was a miracle. And then uh, they were told to go in and take possession of the land you have sworn with, with uplifted hand to give them. God is the subject of every verse in that, in that paragraph. God did this. He did this. He did that. But uh, here's the first sour note. Verse 16. They, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. God delivered them from slavery and they immediately forgot what it was, what it was like to be enslaved. And they whined and they moaned and they complained and they, they griped and they gave God a terrible time all the way down to Sinai. But he continued to feed them. He continued to supply water for them. He put up with them. He didn't go off and leave them. He didn't abandon them. He gave them another chance because he's the God 
of another chance. You see, he didn't give up on them. You, he says, are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate. This is a quote from Exodus 34, right after the story of the, uh, of the calf, the golden calf. You are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate. The word for compassionate here is the, based on the Hebrew word for womb. And it describes, it's descriptive of the feelings that a woman has for her unborn child. That kind of tender love and compassion and eager expectation. Slow to anger, abounding in love, therefore you did not desert them. Even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Or when they committed awful blasphemies. The word for blasphemy is the word to despise. It's based on that, on that word. They thumbed their nose at God. They had no use for him. He gave them everything. They needed nothing. And they appreciated nothing they had. And yet he didn't give up on them. He's the God of, of another chance. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert. He could have walked off and left them, but he didn't. By the day, uh, by day, the, the, the pillar of cloud did not cease to guide them on their path. He didn't stop guiding them, though he certainly was, would be justified in doing so. Nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. He gave them the cloud to guide them, the spirit to instruct them, the manna to feed them. Water for their thirst. For 40 years you sustained them in the desert. The word for sustain means to hold together. Their tendency was to fly apart. God contained them. He held them together during those years. They lacked nothing. They lacked nothing. Their clothes didn't wear out and neither did their feet. Through the 40 years that they, that they wandered in the wilderness, God took care of them. Though they didn't appreciate anything that God had done. They practiced idolatry through most of that of that period. And then in verse 22, you gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to, uh, to them even the remotest frontiers. And he tells the story of the conquest, first of the Transjordan, the region to the east of the Jordan River, and then the, the conquest of, of Canaan itself. You brought them into the land that you told their fathers to enter and possess. Their sons went in and took possession of the land. That's the theme of the book of Joshua. It's repeated 22 times. They possessed the land. This was the land that was given to them. And they, they had the title deed to the land even before they conquered it and they took it. They subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in the land. And uh, you captured fortified cities. They had never seen a walled city in their life until they, they went into to Canaan. And fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things. They didn't even have to go to the grocery store. They moved into an ho- to a house where the larders were full. The pantry, the pantry was already stocked. Wells were already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were fat, literally. They reveled in your great goodness. Uh, This is the only place in the Old Testament where this verb reveled occurs, the the verb that's translated reveled. They actually made up a word, apparently. They took a noun, and they made a verb out of it. And the noun is, is the noun Eden. God Eden, then. That's what it says. It's as though they were back in the same set of circumstances that God prepared for Adam and Eve. He gave them everything their hearts could could desire. They had no armies. They weren't trained as warriors. They had no war machines. They had no battering rams. They had no uh, cavalry or chariots. They were totally at the mercy of the Canaanites. These were fighting men. And God gave them the land. Miraculously. Just gave them the land. They walked around one city and the thing fell down. 
They went to another city and the people left their, their defense system, their, their walled city. They went out into the plains. They fought the Israelites on their own terms. It's amazing. Some of you know Dr. Bruce Walkie. He's been here to speak in the past. He's a professor now at Westminster Seminary. And he was telling a group of us one time, he was doing a postdoctoral fellowship in Palestine, and they set him to work uh, uh, in a, on a dig in the city of Gezer. And uh, because he was new at this and uh, because he was a Christian and for various other reasons, they kind of put him off to the side where he couldn't do any trouble, get into any trouble. And they gave him a couple of Arab workmen to help him and told him to dig there. And he started digging. He dug down about 15, 20 feet. And he came down on top of what he thought was a Roman wall. Uh, Pardon me, a a Roman road. Very often you find cobblestone roads that the Romans had built. So he came down. He thought that's what he had found. So he continued to dig. He discovered he'd come right down on the old Canaanite wall of the city of Gezer. It was a major find. As a matter of fact, he came down right on the the main gate and became somewhat famous. uh, Just an illustration of being faithful at doing what you're called to do and God will set things right. He wrote it up, up and he's known all over the world now because of this find. But what he discovered was a wall, get this, 45 feet wide at the top. That's about the width of a, of a modern highway. 61 feet wide at the base and 41 feet tall. Now that's what Israel had to contend with. But Gasser was one of the cities that the Canaanites came out of. God gave them a spirit of craziness. They walked out of the outside of the city, out into the plains. And the Israelites defeated them. In Psalm 41 puts it, it was not Israel's sword that won the land, nor did their right hand bring them victory. It was God's right hand, God's arm, and the light of God's face because he loved you. See? That wasn't because Israel, they weren't mighty warriors, they hadn't been doing well. You read the book of Joshua and you find they were not doing very well at all in the beginning stages. They, they, they conquered the land with almost no loss of life. The only casualties took place at Ai when they disobeyed the Lord. The rest of the land was conquered with almost without any, any loss of life. How did it happen? God's faithfulness. He's the God of another chance, you see. And then uh, in verse 26 and following, you have a, a description of what we would call the period of the judges. This story is told in the book of Judges. If you want a good praise of the of the book, read chapter two. It says they they did the sin, the sin, which is Baal worship. They gave themselves to worship Baal, and whenever they did, God gave them over to their enemies, and they would cry out to God and ask for deliverance, and God would send a judge, a deliverer. A judge is not a judicial figure. We always think of someone with a wig and robes. But the judges were champions. More, you know, they were like, well, they were Rambos. God would send, send he'd raise up someone like, uh, like uh, uh, Jephthah or Barak or Samson or Gideon or Deborah to mobilize the people and get them going. And they'd drive these enemies out of the, out of the land and they'd enjoy a period of peace and prosperity. And they'd go right back into Baal worship. And they'd, they'd be uh, sub- subjugated by their enemies. They'd cry out to God. He'd send another deliverer. And they would have a period of peace. And they'd go right back into Baal worship. Seven of these major cycles plus some minor cycles are described in the book of Judges. Sex and anarchy and, and violence and, 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 and idolatry and all sorts of things were going on. Pervaded the entire 
entire nation. Every man did what was right in his own eyes is the theme of the book of Judges. But nevertheless, God just kept delivering them. Verse 28, as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven. And in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. You warned them to return to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances by which a man will live if he obeys them. That's all God wanted them to know, that if they kept his word, they'd, they'd live. They'd be fully human. They'd, they'd live life the way man was intended to live. But stubbornly they, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and refused to listen. For many years you were patient with them. By your spirit you admonished them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention. So you handed them over to neighboring peoples, that is, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. But in your great mercy, there's that word compassion again. You did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. He's a God of grace and mercy. Verses 28 through 31 describe the period that we would call the monarchy, the period that's described in Samuel and Kings. David came to the throne. He was, he was a good king. He was a man after God's own heart. He was succeeded by Solomon. There's hardly anything said about Solomon that's good in the Old Testament. He had a hopeful beginning. But he shortly uh, sent the, the nation into decline. He sowed the seeds that resulted in the division of the, of the nation into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, Jeroboam, rebelled, took ten tribes to the north. There were 22 kings in the north. Uh, they lasted, uh, that northern kingdom lasted until the 8th century B.C. and the Assyrians finally destroyed that, that nation and took them into captivity because there wasn't one king of whom it said he did what was right in the sight of God. He did evil, like uh, the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, is the way the, the prophet puts it. And finally, after God sent prophets and waited and waited, time after time he appealed to them, finally he sent the Assyrians, and, and they were taken into captivity. And then in the southern kingdom, in Judah, some good kings, some evil kings, they endured for a little better than 400 years. God sent prophet after prophet, the prophets that we know about, from the scriptures as well as other prophets. He appealed to them. He waited. And uh, they wouldn't listen. And finally, in the uh, middle of the 6th century, the Babylonians took them into, into captivity. But even then, even then this person says, God didn't abandon them. You handed them over to neighboring peoples, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them. For you're a gracious and merciful God. He sent them to Babylon to get the Babylon to get the idol cure, and it worked. Israel never did worship idols after that, at least not idols cast out of stone or made out of wood. He brought them back. And these people who are who are uttering this prayer are an illustration of God's grace. They're back in the land because God is merciful and compassionate. But as they put it, things are not right. They're not good. Therefore, O oh, oh our God, I'm reading verse 32, Great, mighty, and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love, do not let this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The word for, for hardship here means weariness. They were worn out. And they go on to describe why this is so. The Persians now were taking all of their national product. And it was going to feed Persian mouths and 
And he, he says, we're slaves today, slaves in the land you gave your forefathers so they could eat its fruit and other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. You have been just, he says back in verse 33. You have been just, but we have sinned and we're paying for it. It's abundant. Uh, the, the, the harvest of the land goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great dis- distress. They were at low ebb. The word for stress has the idea of being stressed out. We're under tremendous pressure, they say. Things are not right. So in chapter 10, they say, we're going to make them right. And they make a series of vows. We're going to keep the Sabbath. We're going to pay the tithe. We're going to center our worship around the temple again. We're going to get it all together. And a couple of years later, Nehemiah has to come back from Babylon to straighten him out. Because all the things that they vowed to do, they didn't do. People say, you know, God's people, they had a genius for religion. They didn't. They had a a genius for apostasy, if anything, just as we do. They could sing the same hymn we sing. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So Nehemiah came back and he, and he made another appeal to them and he brought them back to the Lord. And after Nehemiah's death, the whole thing hardened, Judaism hardened into the Pharisaism that Jesus encountered. It wasn't any better, it was worse. Now I'm not speaking this against the Jewish people. I mean, this is just characteristic of all of God's people. We're all like that. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. The reason God stays after us is not because we deserve it, but because he's persistent. Theologians talk about the perseverance of the saints. I believe it. Those that are truly regenerated will endure to the end. We'll persevere because of God's activity in our life. But but we should also talk about the perseverance of God. He never gives up on us. He never stops hounding us, chasing us, wooing us. Trying to win us. Once we belong to him, he's on our trail. And even if we're not, he's on our trail. Uh, Some of you are probably thinking back to this uh, week and the way things have have gone. And despite your good intentions, they've not gone well. Uh, and, And probably you're thinking, how can God love the likes of me? Well, he does. He does. Because that's his character. He's gracious and forgiving and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love. He'll never, never give up on you. Or perhaps you're on the run. You, you've turned your back on God and, and you want to get him, you get away from him just as fast as you can like the prodigal son. But uh, you need to listen because those footsteps that you hear are God hounding you down running after you. He's not going to let you get away. As Francis Thompson wrote, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him and under running laughter. Up vistaed slopes I sped and shot precipitated down titanic gloom of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. He stays with us to the end. He's not put off by our unpromising character. 
As J. Oswald Sanders said, he's the God of the difficult temperament, the God of the warped personality, the God of the misfit. Or as Isaiah said, he will not falter or get discouraged. You may uh, falter, you may get discouraged with yourself, but he never gets discouraged with you. He's the God of another chance. He never gives up. As Jesus put it, Come unto me, all you that are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. The message that I see in, in Nehemiah 9 is simply this, that no failure is final. It doesn't make any difference how much you've sinned or, or how flagrantly, flagrantly you've You've sinned. You can't outdo the grace of God. As Paul says, where sin abounds, grace doth much more abound. He's the God of another chance. Let's pray. We would like now to celebrate around the Lord's table. This is simply another opportunity to worship him. We're told to remember his death until he comes, and this, uh, this table does that. It's a, it's a way of, of remembering, of celebrating the significance of his death. Uh, before we do, let, let's, let's first look at ourselves. We've been looking at God. We've seen something of his faithfulness. Now we need to look at ourselves. And we need to face the fact that we're weak and full of Foibles, failures, we're not what we think we are at all, desperately in need of God's grace. And we need to thank him for his forgiveness. Perhaps you've, uh, uh, you have some specific sin in your life that needs to be faced and put away. We need to be honest and transparent before you. He wants to present us before him blameless, not sinless, but without blame. The only way we can escape blame is by going to the cross and accepting the, the salvation that's, that's ours there. So will you do that this morning before we, before we distribute the elements? Will you take a moment to examine your own heart? If there is sin there, confess it. 